Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, where we help you manage your growing engineering team. Through expert interviews, we help you navigate the challenges of leading, hiring, growing, and nurturing your tech team to deliver the value your customers demand. Brought to you by agilityfeet.com, experts in staffing engineering teams in Latin America for clients globally. And, and each potential rollout to production can cause an incident, or it can just happen that the services have been running for some time and then something changed and you need to respond. So that means that you need to be an organization that is ready to respond. So even if nothing happens for a prolonged period of time, you need to be ready to respond. So now, when something happens, you need to then be able to roll out your incident response quickly. That means that you need to be able to mobilize people quickly and uh, you need to be able to mobilize the right people quickly so that there is um, a small number of people who are able to fix the incident as soon as possible. Ideally, you put it before the users actually saw it because your SLOs were set in the right way <laughs> and your SRE infrastructure then alerted you also in a timely, in a timely manner. Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, the podcast for leaders of growing software engineering teams. I'm Aaron Syme, your host. My co-host, David Alfar, was unable to join in this episode, but I had a great conversation anyways with our guest, Dr. Vladislav Yukas on site reliability engineering. As you listen to this episode, I encourage you to think about how you define success when you launch a new software application or a new feature to a legacy application. Any deployment involves risk, and there's always going to be some failures in an application, either at launch or just operationally. So minimizing those and responding to them properly is what site reliability engineering is all about, maintaining an acceptable level of failure or an error budget, as our guest Vlad will talk about today. So with that thought in mind, let's get to our interview with Vlad. Dr. Vladislav Yukas is the author of Establishing SRE Foundations, a step-by-step -step guide to introducing site reliability engineering in software delivery organizations. Dr. Yukas is head of R&D for Siemens Health and Ears, where he is running a software delivery organization of 250 distributed team members who develop and operate the Siemens Health and Ears Team Play digital health platform. He's led the implementation of continuous delivery, DevOps site reliability engineering, and cloud implementations in regulated environments. He holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Manchester and joins us today from Bavaria, Germany. Welcome to the Scaling Tech Podcast, Vlad. Hi, Arjen. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, really happy to have you here with us. Um, let's start with a little bit, uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about your background, how you got into site reliability engineering, and the uh, work that you do at Siemens Health and Ears. Yeah, sure. So I work at Siemens Health and Ears, which is a part of Siemens uh, where we take care of healthcare providers and uh, produce lots of hardware devices and software products in order to equip health care providers and specifically hospitals with different equipments in different departments. And um, there, several years ago, we started the so-called Siemens Healthineers Team Play Digital Health Platform, which is a platform for digital services, which are deployed in the cloud. And that's the platform for the entire company. So there are different business units who deploy the digital services on top of our platform and we enable them 
with quick starting the journey with digital services and also enable them to operate the services as well. And this, of course, leads us into the realm of operations, which then leads us into the realm of SRE. And this is also how I got in touch with the subject. So when we started the platform, then all of us were coming from the on-premise development and we had no idea about what it meant to actually operate software as a service. So to provide so service by means of software. And at some point we learned the hard way that you really need to have some well-defined structure for operating your services reliably. And this is where SRE comes in handy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and so let's let's define what is site reliable uh, site reliability engineering. Uh, I think the term comes from Google originally, is that right? And sort of how they run production systems. What's what's the model? How did they change? Uh, how did that change the way that companies consider systems and site reliability? Yeah, indeed. So um, SRE, site reliability engineering, is a discipline that was invented by Google. At some point, Google was growing very fast, and uh, it needed a way to operate Google. So, and it needed a way to operate Google in such a way that you don't need to scale the number of operations engineers to run Google with the growth of the usage of Google. So um, they then were looking for ways to do this and uh, they came up with um, a set of principles that they wrote up in the famous Google SRE books. Uh -huh. And um, those books, they condensed the different practices um, of operating Google um, into a set of, um, of uh, principles, practices, and uh, kind of methods. So that that together became SRE. And there is uh, also a famous saying that at the time they were writing up the SRE book or the SRE books, there was no single team at Google operating the same way. But they were all kind of sharing principles, sharing certain methodologies, which then in the end gave birth to the written up discipline SRE in the original Google SRE books. So what the discipline does, it enables you to run services reliably at scale, which is what Google does. And it comes um, with a couple of principles. And um, one of those principles is that you treat operations as a software problem. Therefore, it's all inspired by software engineering. And this is uh, quite a bit of a departure compared to how software was operated before, because before it was a rather manual job where somebody developed the software and then handed it over to somebody else for operation. And then uh, the operations folks, they had their ways of then setting up the servers, then deploying the software onto, onto the servers, then coping with the load, scaling, and, and so on. And if you start treating all this as a software problem, then you kind of approach this with the software engineering mindsets. And therefore, you then from the beginning implement a lot more in the, in the original code as it originates. And then you also then um, implement a lot of automation along the way that enables you to operate the services um, efficiently. And um, then all that leads you to a different, a different kind of idea in the organization what software operations is and how you go about operating the software and um, how do you actually make sure that your services run reliably at scale. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think thinking about it, uh, deployment as a software problem, uh, a software challenge uh, is is a definite mindset from the old days of on-premise uh, solutions and, and a big change as, as people move more and more to the cloud and certainly in uh, healthcare, uh, you know, that can be a particular challenge too. We'll, we'll come back to more about, you know, those concepts of like continuous delivery and healthcare and regulated or, um, environments. But let's, let's start with a few key term definitions that are used frequently in site reliability engineering um, and which you define in, in, uh, in your book. Uh, which I've copy of here, uh, and uh, the um, couple of the terms that are used a lot in there are uh, service level indicators uh, and service level objectives. Can you talk to us a little little bit about those, how they relate to each other? Yeah, definitely. So if you look at the um, at the SRE principles as postulated by Google in their original book, then you'll find one principle there: managed by service level objectives. And therefore, service level objectives and service level indicators, they are fundamental to SRE as a discipline. So now, what are these um, service level indicators or SLIs? And what are these service level objectives or SLOs? Service level indicators, they are things that you might be familiar with um, without SRE. So they are things that um, you just may know from being in the software industry. And these are things like availability, latency, throughput, and so on. And um, in order to define reliability of a particular service, different things might be important. So I suppose that availability is a fundamental indicator of reliability, and therefore it's probably going to be important to any service. Then um, latency is already not something that would necessarily be applicable to any service, but I think a large number of services would also benefit from a certain response time and uh, therefore latency would be another service level indicator that would be applicable to many services and so on it goes so throughput and uh, consistency and many many other illities um, if you wish they can constitute a set of um, a set of slis that would apply to a service in order to define its reliability Absolutely. Once you have got your SLIs for a service that you want to track, because they are, as the name suggests, indicators of reliability, indicators of the service level that your service provides, then for each SLI, you can define an objective that you think your service needs to reach in order to provide good reliability to the users of the service. So you can go ahead and start with availability because this is kind of the most fundamental one and say, okay, so that service, it sits somewhere, for example, um, at the bottom of my service network and therefore lots of other services are calling it and therefore it needs to have high availability. And then you may express it as say, for example, okay, so let's set it to 99.5% availability over a four week period, for example. That could be a definition of a service level objective or an SLO. That means that um, in 99.5% of requests within the four week period, you want that the service actually is available and responds. Then you yeah. can go ahead and take another service level indicator, like for example, latency, and you can say, okay, so 
there are certain operations on the service, they are really more critical than others to respond fast to the users because this is how they perceive reliability of my service. So if it takes 10 minutes on that operation to return, then it will not be considered as reliable. And then you can set another service level objective for latency for these operations and say, okay, so these operations, they need, for example, to return within say 500 milliseconds in say 95% of requests over a four week period. And there you go, you've got already two SLOs, one for availability, another one for latency. And then coming back to the managed by service, managed by service level objectives from the SRE principles, you start then understanding, okay, so I've set those SLOs, I need a way to track those SLOs, and I want to manage by those SLOs. That means if I don't fulfill them, then I want to invest in reliability rather than investing in features because I want to, to provide that level of service. Yeah. And definitely the use case, uh, the type of application that you're working with, as you said, uh, it will vary the type of SLIs that, yeah. that matter. I mean, if we have a, a say, static text informational type of website and FAQ, then availability is definitely important. It needs to be available. Um, but that that's, you know, latency, maybe not as much of an issue as say, if we're building a video chat application yeah. where the, you know, or in a tool like we're in right now recording a podcast, right? Where latency of video uh, of the audio is incredibly important uh, for us to have a good conversation, right? Uh, so maintaining low latency in a situation like that is crucial. So it, how do you decide um, on what the different service level indicators are? Is that a decision made by the engineering team, the product owners, the, the users of the system? Um, how, how do you go about determining what those are and what a acceptable level uh, SLO is for it? Right. So I think this is exactly where SRE as a discipline shines because it aligns different parties in the software delivery organization on operational concerns. And therefore it gives each party or each role a certain task to do. So um, product development plays its role there, then product operations plays its role there and product management plays its role there. And specifically, this is evident when you start defining those service level objectives or also selecting service level indicators. So you need to bring together um, on the same table the product manager responsible for the service, developers responsible for the service, and people who operate the service also need to be on the same table. Although it could happen that your developers also operate your service and therefore you would have then um, kind of developers playing the developer role and the operations engineer role that that of course is possible and also welcome um, under the SRE framework. But in any case, you need to have people who are fulfilling those three roles, product management for the service, development for the service, operations for the service. And then you need to start from the user, which is um, easy if you've got the product manager on board <laughs> and, right. uh, and then you um, you ask the product manager okay so now we are defining the slos for the service what are the most important user journeys that that service fulfills from your point of view and then they'll say okay so this is the most important one if that one doesn't work then the service is not reliable then you go okay so let's define the slos for that particular use case and then you turn to the engineers and say okay so you heard that guy said that this is the user journey that we'll be optimizing for and 
um, this is the set of users that we want to make happy. And um, now that use case, what kind of uh, what kind of call chains does it generate as the requests progress from service to service to service to service? And then the engineers will go, oh, okay, so first that service is called, and then this service is called, and then that service is called, and then they go like, okay, so this is the call chain that we are optimizing for, right? So we want to make that call chain reliable. And then in that call chain, so here is the service that we're looking at right now. So now let's think about so what could be the, uh, the importance of availability of that particular operation for that particular service in that call chain in this context of this uh, user journey. And then they go like, yeah, so actually it's important, but there are others, they are more important. Therefore, you know, maybe let's set it to 99% availability. Okay, so now at that point, this is all rather theoretical because you haven't gotten any feedback from production yet, right? And therefore at the beginning, you just go empirically and you just say, okay, so we here at the table, we think this is a good idea, let's just set it. And then you set the SLO. And then you feed all this into your SRE infrastructure. And then the first thing the SRE infrastructure will do, it will look for fulfilling that SLO. And if you are fulfilling that SLO, then you won't get any SLO breaches from the infrastructure. And then if you aren't fulfilling it, then you'll get SLO breaches from the infrastructure. And then um, if you really don't fulfill your SLO, which happens very often because the engineers, they often overestimate themselves or rather they overestimate their services, (laughs) 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 then um, there will be lots of SLO breaches. And then very soon after that, you'll be then again in the same round saying, we're getting bombarded with those SLO breaches. This doesn't work because there is too much cognitive load. We cannot handle this. What do we do? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I like that. I think it's it's common for us as engineers to kind of overestimate our services sometimes and sometimes to underestimate our users uh, yeah. of the application. And that was something that um, that I liked in, in your book too. Uh, you talked about... Um, the importance of making sure that the SLOs are really defined from the user's perspective and not necessarily the engineer's perspective, right? I mean, depending on the system, you know, that we're talking about, the engineers may be part of the users. And so in that case, they can perhaps wear both hats, but it's, it's probably a different set of engineers in the organization, at least, you know, we need to think about who's using the system and what are things from their perspective, not necessarily what are the SLOs that we care about as the people implementing it. Um, Because there's probably overlap, but they may not be quite the same thing. Are there uh, there other pitfalls that you see that happen in in, uh, the definition of SLIs and SLOs? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the, uh, um, the, the attempt to be very scientific um, at the beginning is quite common. So because uh, sometimes you've got uh, people on the team that are very logical and they just are not comfortable with just setting a number that everybody just agrees on right now. So they want more scientific backing, more data backing, more decisions uh, rooted in data already from the beginning. So that's also okay, but it depends on where you are on your SRE adoption journey or on your uh, journey towards improving your operations capabilities. You might be already at a point where it's just a quick query um, and you get the data of from availability of your services 
across all your production environments just like that. All right. Or you may not be at that point yet. You may be yet at the very beginning where you haven't got even uniformed logging across all services and so on. And this is not possible. So I think um, it's it's important to recognize uh, the uh, the people on the team. Right. So um, it, it's important to, to see. OK, so now I'm having here very analytical people. So with them, I need to be kind of more data driven, even when setting the initial SLOs. And it may be that you've got people who are just okay with uh, with setting something that everybody agrees with, and it may be it may be so obvious that that will not work that you need to kind of ground them and 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 say, okay, so maybe we just have a quick look at production because it's inevitable that that's not going to work because I am seeing from the past, you know, that service has never went over 98% availability, and you want 99. That will inevitably bombard you with with the SLO breaches. But then if you if you see that there is kind of a little bit of resistance there, then you just let them do this. And then a week later, you are sure to be in the same conversation that they get bombarded by by the SLO bridges. So that's that's definitely um, kind of one thing. And then another thing is so once you have set your initial SLOs, once you start getting initial feedback from uh, from production, you need to work with that feedback. So you need to incorporate the insights from that feedback into your SLO calibrations, so to speak. So, so then once the um, um, once you've got a little bit of experience with running under your initial SLOs, then you need to come together and say, okay, so now all the SLOs are green. That's great. But are customers complaining? And if the answer is yes, then you need to, you need to tighten your SLOs, right? Or it may be the other way around. So you come back after a week, everything is red, right? So no SLO has been fulfilled, but is anybody complaining? now means you can actually lower your thresholds and still fulfill the reliability requirements and actually getting into the habit of working with that feedback from production is at the core of sre and is something that you need to train the development team to do because it doesn't come it doesn't come naturally right so no engineer is coming from the university or even from five years of working somewhere and having that ingrained in them maybe the ones that worked for google but by and large, there's, there isn't something like a habit for this. Yeah. No, and I like that perspective, too, that this is going to be an iterative process, right? Where, you know, you may have a preference based on the team or the organization or sort of the system under test of how scientific you can be initially. But probably, you know, when you're doing this for the first time, you probably don't have a whole lot of data or history to work with. So you've got a set of assumptions um, and and some uh, perhaps technical assumptions about how hard it's going to be to meet those SLOs. And yeah. so you you choose an initial level based on that, but being able to either go higher or lower in those standards, it could be either direction, right? To get that right yeah. balance of, of site reliability and cost or efficiency or time to production or, you know, whatever the trade-offs are that you may be making in your system. So yeah, I like that. Uh, keeping a very iterative perspective about yeah, this. This absolutely. is not a, a set once and done uh, yeah. type of standard. It's going to have to change over time. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happens during uh, an, an, an incident or a breach of some type. Like, what is uh, what is that like? Uh, which parts of the team are responsible for responding to it? Um, is this a is this a development team issue? Is this an ops issue? Is this both? Right. 
So with software as a service, you'll definitely need an incident response process for sure, because incidents will happen. So first of all, you are likely to sit on top of some cloud platform, which is also changing all the time. Then you will have your own services being deployed probably more and more frequently as you adopt more and more continuous delivery and so on. Right. So and each potential rollout to production can cause an incident or it can just happen that the services have been running for some time and then something changed and you need to respond. So that means that you need to be an organization that is ready to respond. So even if nothing happens for a prolonged period of time, you need to be ready to respond. So now when something happens, you need to then be able to roll out your incident response quickly. That means that you need to be able to mobilize people quickly and uh, you need to be able to mobilize the right people quickly so that there is um, a small number of people who are able to fix the incidents as soon as possible. Ideally, you caught it before the users actually saw it because your SLOs were set in the right way <laughs> and your SRE infrastructure then alerted you also in a timely, in a timely manner without overwhelming you. <laughs> and um, then um, once the, um, the SLO breach arrived at a person who is supposed to look at it, and that can be either an operations person or it can be a development person, or it just depends on the setup and there are several setups possible there. And uh, then that person starts analyzing um, the incident and at some point they may realize, okay, so this is something serious. And this something, something serious needs to be also qualified somehow. So you need to have a way um, in the organization to say, okay, so this is priority one and I'm deciding on priority one based on this, or this may be priority two and I'm deciding that this is priority two based on this. It definitely doesn't have to be science, but it needs to be something kind of reasonable where you say, okay, so we're declaring this priority one because nobody can log on, right? So this is kind of obvious, right? So this is not priority two, this is priority one. <laughs> and then from then onwards, you need to be able to mobilize people. So you already alerted somebody. And then if that somebody can, can fix the, the issue, fine. But oftentimes you need to then take people from another team. And then after some time, you might then um, need to have a person from another team. And once you've got several teams, you suddenly created the need for coordination, right? Because if it's something as serious as nobody can log on, then you also need to take care of not only fixing the issue, but also communicating about the issue first internally in the organization that everybody knows about it. Then maybe the customer support, then maybe your partners who might be using your APIs, then maybe your customers and so on. So you need to have a strategy that was defined beforehand by your incident response process, and you need to be able to, uh, to roll it out in case of need, right? So um, this is then something that, that you need to, to be able to do um, on a short notice because it always uh, comes unexpectedly. So yeah, this is yeah. kind of the essence of, of incident response. And then once you um, once you have fixed the incident, then you also again need to inform everyone that this is now fixed and settled. So your status page needs to reflect this, that there was an incident and now there isn't anymore. And hopefully all that uh, happened before the customer actually noticed this. And then you need to be able to run an efficient postmortem so that um, you then quickly assemble people and information 
and uh, try to understand what happens to our perfectly set up socio-technical system that this still happened. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, this overall is then the realm of the incident response process. So it's actually quite essential and um, necessary in a software as a service organization. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that, that um, that's incredibly important, determining that priority right up front when the, you know, right, right after the incident has happened and having some, some sort of clear standards, um, some decision principles to, to make right. that decision against, right? Because a priority one incident is probably going to uh, require the highest level of, of uh, SLA, of a, of, of a response time and fixing right. it. It probably requires that there be a post-mortem and an extra level of yeah. communication with the users. But uh, I imagine you might have different uh, SLOs for lower priority items. Is that, is, is that correct to say? Yeah, definitely. So it all depends on the user journeys, right? So we start mm -hmm. from the user journeys and then what is the most important set of user journeys that we really must fulfill for the platform to be useful? And then we iterate from there. Excellent. All right. Well, let's pause here for a word from our sponsor uh, and stick with us. When we come back, we'll talk more with Vlad about uh, applying site reliability engineering in healthcare and with continuous delivery. Building custom WebRTC video applications is hard, but your go-live doesn't have to be stressful. We thought we were ready to launch our video application, but we discovered it's a lot harder than we thought. Live video applications are not like building other web or mobile apps. Our team worked hard out there today, but we just didn't have all the right pieces. I'll tell you what we should have done. We should have brought in the live video experts from WebRTC Ventures. If you're building a live video application, then trust the experts at WebRTC.Ventures to help you design, build, test, deploy, and manage your custom-built application, or integrate live video into your existing application. Contact us today at WebRTC.Ventures. All right, we're back with Dr. Vladislav Yukas talking about site reliability engineering. Now, Vlad, uh, you work in healthcare, and uh, yeah. it was certainly a regulated environment, uh, and many people work in a regulated environment, and site reliability is particularly important to that, right? And healthcare yeah. lives may actually be on the line uh, in, in uh, you know, us providing information from our systems correctly. So we have to balance uh, innovation, which is also still really important in healthcare, yeah. Uh, with rapid deployment and with regulations like FDA medical device regulations or HIPAA right. regulations here in the U.S., similar things globally. Yeah. Can you talk about the both the burdens and the opportunities that working in a regulated environment offers? Right. Yes. So um, I work in healthcare and we are definitely heavily regulated. And um, it's not just the hardware that's regulated, which is kind of obvious, but also the software. And uh, there are different classifications of, of software. And actually, quite a lot of software can be a so-called not a medical device. It's a non-medical device software. And then there is uh, software that, that really takes part uh, in the therapy decisions or in the diagnostic decisions, which will be then medical device software. And uh, you need to fulfill different regulations depending on whether you are a medical device or whether you are a non-medical device. 
So if you're a non-medical device, then there is still regulation. And um, in our company, we set up the processes in such a way that uh, non-medical device process is not very far away from the medical device process. Why is that? Because um, the non-medical device uh, software can easily become medical device software if you add certain features, right? So today you are a non-medical device and then tomorrow you add a couple of features that really then uh, goes into the diagnosis decisions and therapy decisions and you become medical device software. So you don't want to revamp your entire development uh, process from scratch. And if you do this, if you cross that boundary and therefore the process that we follow in the non-medical device arena is not very far from the one followed by real uh, medical device software. So the main difference between non-medical device software and medical device software is that with medical device software, you have to do clinical evaluations before you are allowed to put the software onto the market, which of course adds time to release. Um, obviously, but um, apart from that, we follow quite um, quite a lot of regulations also for non-medical devices, which actually also helps just produce high-quality software. Because uh, in essence, you need to have your requirements clearly written down, and then you need to have your tests also clearly written down. Then you need to also uh, show the evidence that your tests actually cover the requirements adequately and that you've executed uh, all the tests in a timely manner and uh, they are all green and so on. So I would say kind of the the software engineering mindset uh, is also in the regulations. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. I mean, when you started to say uh, the importance of regardless of, of whether uh, software is considered a medical device or not following the same standards. I was thinking at first around, you know, it's good for team culture and sort of process that we sort of think the same way about everything. But the point that you made uh, about uh, the fact that software is going to evolve and change over time, and, and maybe it's it's not considered uh, you know, medical software or, or, you know, requires all of the regulations now, but it may in the future. And we don't want to rebuild it from scratch because obviously everything changes, uh, over time. So that's a really, really good point. I hadn't considered, uh, how does, uh, site reliability engineering overlap with, uh, other agile engineering techniques like continuous delivery? Right. I've been thinking about that overlap for a long time and I actually wanted to, to find some correlation between the continuous delivery indicators, which are DORA metrics, and the uh, SRE indicators, which is whether you are fulfilling your SLOs. And so far, I haven't really been able to link that well. And it turns out that you can do well on the continuous delivery indicators, and then you may not do very well on your SRE indicators. And uh, also the opposite might uh, also hold true. So I'm kind of still uh, researching this myself and trying to, to find the link. But so far, I wasn't able to find a very clear link between yeah. those. So, so it's a bit, of a, uh, a bit of a compromise, I imagine, of, of kind of trying to, to meet both sets of, of principles there. And, and I would imagine... Um, that this particularly comes around the automation that's involved, right? And in an, in an ideal continuous delivery environment, um, 
you can have any individual on the team to deploy to production. You may even have those production deployments happening automatically by a bot after, you know, it passes something in a testing environment. That's harder to pull off in a regulated environment. So I imagine the degree to which you're comfortable with automated deployment or to which environments you're comfortable with a fully automated deployment, uh, like in the ideal continuous delivery model is kind of where you have to strike that balance for your individual organization. Is that, is that fair? I think so. So uh, you definitely can go all the way with continuous deployment for your internal environments. So mm-hmm. there, for sure, you've got all the freedom to run in a fully automated fashion and promoting software from environment to environment based on automatic decisions that are based on passing the tests, for sure. Then at some point, again, if you're a medical device, then you need to do clinical evaluations, which then require a separate environment. And you cannot fully automate this because it requires manual feedback from the clinics, from the clinical domain. Then uh, also, once you hit production, then um, I am not sure whether it would be possible to automate the fulfillment of all the regulations fully to the point where you make an an automated decision to deploy to production. At least I haven't seen that so far. Maybe we would be able to evolve um, that way at some point, but at least I don't think any medical device vendor does this um, today. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're doing it in your internal environments, at least you're getting a lot of the value from it. You you obviously do still have some delay and value reaching the customer because of the the need for some human interventions, you know, additional uh, oversight in that process. But you're at least getting the benefit of, by doing that to your sort of internal testing environments or staging environments that you have still that, um, you know, your team is forced to script everything out, to think about how to deploy it automatically, to see immediate impact of their changes and still doing frequent internal, uh, you know, small releases and that sort of thing. So still a tremendous amount of benefit of trying to implement that as far as you can down the delivery chain, right? And then get a little bit of best of both worlds there. Yeah, and there is also another huge benefit there. So because uh, once you set up the organization to work the continuous delivery way where everybody is aiming to reduce the release cycles and so on, then people also start thinking about how to fulfill the regulations in the most automated way possible. And thereby you create lots of tools which can be also integrated into the pipeline environments so that as you pass environment by environment by environment, you're actually collecting bits of evidence that is then produced at the end. And this is a huge benefit because if you do all this that's necessary to fulfill the medical device regulations only at the end and manually, this is a lot of burden. And this is not to compare with the, with, with your ability to set up the process in an automated way when you integrate different tools into your different pipeline environments and then collect the evidence bits by bits um, over time as you pass the environments and then automatically produce um, a good amount of documentation to be produced then to regulatory bodies and so on. Yeah, that's a great point of you know how you're building up that evidence along the way. Um, yeah. I, I like that a lot. Um, are you seeing any impact or do you foresee any impact on the role of uh, AI and machine learning on site reliability engineering? 
Indeed. So I hope so. I hope that the impact will be actually <laughs> quite big because I see the potential there. So um, just to mention um, an, a very common example. So imagine you've got a new person on the team and that person needs to learn how you operate services. Then typically this kind of process involves lots of tools. Okay, so, you know, where is my incident response process? Where are the logs? You know, where are the queries? How can I write that new query? Oh, I'm not familiar with that language, how they write queries. It's not how I used to do this at my previous workplace. Where is the on-call rotation? You know, who's on call right now? Who is on call from another team? Who, where are the postmortems and so on? Imagine you would be able to do all this by talking to an operations bot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to, to, to be able to do, uh, to, to get a lot of that feedback, I think, from the production system. And I would think, you know, being able to uh, detect anomalies sooner, respond to them faster, could be yeah. a big benefit uh, here, too. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's so much potential here that, um, you know, I, for me, at least, I'm just beginning to wrap my mind around yeah. uh, so many opportunities here that uh, we will. Uh, have a little bit of difficulty anticipating right now, but I think it's absolutely going to change for the better yeah. uh, site reliability uh, over time. So, um, but there's always going to be a human element for sure, yeah. uh, which means that things like culture uh, remain very important in teams and and uh, important in site reliability engineering, I think as well. And you talk about that in the book, uh, it, it being... Uh, Team culture being important to dealing with, uh, you know, how, how do you deal with incidents? Um, yeah. How do you respond to that? Um, and you talk about like an error budget policy right. uh, as well related to the SLOs. Can you expand on that concept of error budget policies and also the importance of uh, team culture? Yeah. So um, error budget is another concept from the SRE jargon. And um, error budget is actually something that you calculate automatically once you've got the SLOs. So let's go back to the example that we had at the beginning of the conversation. We had the, um, the availability SLO set to, I think it was something like 99% or so. That means that your service uh, is available or should be available to fulfill the SLO for 99% of requests, say within four week period. That means that for 1% of requests, your service is allowed by definition of the SLO to be unavailable, right? And this is the budget that you've got in order to make mistakes, to produce errors, right? And therefore it's called error budget. So that means that for 1% of requests within the four week period, I can be unavailable safely and I still fulfill my SLO. And then, of course, I need another feedback loop uh, from, from the users of the service in order to tell me whether fulfilling that SLO still makes them happy if I am unavailable for 1% of, uh, of the time. Uh, but imagine the SLO is good and I'm allowed to then be unavailable for 1% of the request. Then what can I do with this 1%? Well, I can do experimentation. I can do deployments, I can do configuration changes, I can make mistakes, right? So this is what I use that for. And then what I can do with this, I can also let my SRE infrastructure show me the error budget consumption in aggregate. That means it can show me, okay, so here are the services that are owned by my team. And now I don't want to look at only four week period. I want to look at the six month period. 
and now show me all the SLOs that were fulfilled um, for each month in this six month month period and where was the biggest error budget consumption so where did they actually overshoot most so that I was not only unavailable for one percent of the time but I was unavailable say for two three and so on percent of the time and um, then I can use this in order to drive my prioritization of reliability so then if my SLOs make sense then my my um, error budget consumption also makes sense. And then I can start prioritizing reliability where I consumed most error budget. Well, that's interesting. I, one, one thing you said in there really uh, caught my ear in particular that you know, I thought, of, of course, about an error budget being about how we communicate our, our say, availability or whatever the SLI is with our customer um, and help them understand, you know, yes, we had an incident, but we're still well, well within our error budget. Uh, so, you know, don't panic. Um, but it's not just about uh, communication with the customer, but also allowing space for us to experiment and doing a, a, a test in production or a chaos experiment to test our, you know, our ability to respond, things like that, that, that knowing that we have space in the error budget gives us the confidence to safely perform a test like that, uh, which yeah. I think is a really interesting point. That's right. All right. Well, let's, uh, as we're coming close to the end of our time together, Vlad, let's talk about how an engineering letter, uh, leader uh, gets started with site reliability engineering, uh, in particular, because uh, unfortunately, uh, most of us as engineering leaders know we don't get to start from scratch uh, in most of our work. We've got a legacy system to be dealt with. Uh, and uh, whether that legacy system is a year old or 20 years old, uh, it's, it's going to have some issues to deal with, right, that may affect the reliability. When you're beginning with a legacy system, how do you start to implement site reliability engineering? Right. Assuming your system is cloud-based. <laughs> right. Think, Let's at least start with there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you can start. If it's on-premise, I think that might be a different conversation. You still would be able to apply three principles. But whether you should be doing it or not is a different story. So let's start with the cloud system. So imagine you've got a legacy cloud system, um, which everybody does. <laughs> and and uh, that was exactly the, the point of my book, to show people how you can establish SRE in an organization that has never done operations the SRE way before. So um, what you would need to do, you would need to drum up some alignment in the organization for SRE. Because um, in order to make some meaningful progress there, you already need um, involvement of quite a few people in different roles. And uh, those roles will be product management, product development, and product operations. So you always need to bring that trio on the same table and you need to bring them together. And therefore, you need to talk to the leaders of product development and operations um, about SRE, and you need to get them excited that trying something like this has a good chance of improving your operations capabilities. And if you're doing this, then you already know that you've got a problem with operations and you want to improve, and SRE is a way to try and improve your capabilities. So then um, once there is uh, some reasonable alignment on this, then you need to, uh, to be able to start somewhere. And uh, what you will need to do, you will need to start some uh, little implementation of the SRE infrastructure. 
and you'll need to find a team that is eager to consume that infrastructure. All that will be very small at the beginning, which is good, and you will establish a very, very tight feedback loop between the features implemented in the infrastructure and the usage of those features in the team who wants to try SRE. And uh, once you fulfill their requests, for example, they're able to specify SLOs, the SRE infrastructure can then track the fulfillment of the SLOs, there is some rudimentary alerting going on, then if they're happy, then this is a point where you can start saying, okay, so maybe we'll find another team who would also benefit from this. And then you take the next team and then you fulfill their requests and therefore you then build up uh, more features in the infrastructure and you've got already two teams who would be advocating for the approach and so on. You start kind of traversing the organization more and more and more until you've rolled it out throughout the organization. Step by step, just just like in your in your book title, take it step by step. Uh, so, Vlad, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Dr. Vladislav Yukas is the author of Establishing SRE Foundations, a step by step guide to introducing site reliability engineering in software delivery organizations. Uh, Vlad, how can our listeners uh, buy your book and learn more about your work? The book is on Amazon, and uh, what I do on LinkedIn, I publish summaries of my book. So if you don't want to read the entire book, then just go to LinkedIn and you'll find summaries for the chapters uh, where I published them already. And there will be new chapter summaries coming up. So LinkedIn is the best place to see my work, I think. Excellent. We'll be sure to include links to your LinkedIn as well as your book in the show notes for this episode. Vlad, thank you so much for joining us on the Scaling Tech Podcast. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, Arin. I really enjoyed it. And uh, also thanks to all your listeners for listening to the episode. I hope that'll be useful. I'm sure it will. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the Scaling Tech Podcast, where we help you manage your growing engineering team. Brought to you by agilityfeet.com, experts in staffing engineering teams in Latin America for clients globally. For more information on today's episode and to submit your ideas for future guests, please visit scalingtechpod.com.